Hey, you know, I am, I'm really glad that we're dealing with this chapter today. And I already hinted that this chapter was going to be a little bit about gender. But uh, in fact, that's not the main point of the passage. The main point of this passage is something different. And so what I want to do is I want to start with something I've noticed from hero stories. In particular, something I've noticed from the Avengers movies. If you've watched any of the Avengers movies or Marvel movies, you know there's some rules about being a hero. And each one of the heroes follows their own different journey and their own different path. But there's a few similarities between all of the different journeys that they all face. And one of those similarities is most easily seen in the life of Peter Parker or the story of Spider-Man. You see, one of the interesting things about Peter Parker is that he's a teenager, and on the one hand, he's got superpowers, and that makes him feel really cool. But on the other hand, he just wants to meet this girl and have a relationship with this girl. And so the question is, the superpowers are interfering with normal life. And so he wants to be a superhero, and his mentor tells him he needs to learn how to live a normal life. And at the end of his first movie, he's like, okay, now I want to live a normal life. And someone says, but I want you to be a superhero. And the question that all superheroes need to face is really simple. It's just this one. It's the question, is it my job? You see, every superhero has a limited range of abilities and a limited range of distance. Uh, in the Peter Parker movie, I'm narrating just a little bit in the, in the uh, Spider-Man movie that was his first solo film of the recent Marvel era. He's at a party and his party is in the suburbs. But one of the problems is that he then learns that there's some dangerous thing that's happening. He sees like a little mushroom cloud off in the city of some sort of like something or other. And he needs to get there. There's just one problem. Peter's superpower involves swinging from tall buildings. And when he's in the suburbs, he's got nothing to swing on, and so he just ends up running. And so the question that he might be asking, that I would be asking, is, is it really my job? There's no way for me to use my particular powers around here, and so is it really my job? Every superhero who lives in a city has to wonder how far their radius of service delivery is going to be. You know, if you're a little too far, Jimmy John's won't deliver to you. If you're a little too far, Domino's won't deliver to you. If you're a little too far, whatever restaurant it is you're looking for isn't going to deliver to you, except for now with Grubhub and stuff, they'll deliver anywhere because they're making money per mile. But anyway, if you're outside the delivery zone, they're just not going to take care of you. So what happens if you're on the other side of the street from superhero's delivery zone? How does the superhero determine if your house is worth saving when he's too far away? See, we never talk about that because the superheroes in the comics are always doing the things that they're supposed to be doing because the comic writer tells you what they're supposed to be doing. But in real life, every superhero has to ask this question. Is that really my job? Or should someone else do it? And being a superhero is difficult because the first question you have to answer is the one that determines whether or not you're a hero. A lot of people talk about people's famous last words, but I'll tell you what a superhero's famous first words are. Well, not very famous, actually. But a superhero's first words are always these. I'll do it. Every superhero begins with the phrase, 
I'll do it. Whatever it is, you don't become a superhero until you say those words. Sadly, those are also the same first words as every villain. Every villain also begins their villainy with the phrase, I'll do it. And so the words themselves don't change things, but uh, they change you. And they determine which kind of path you're going to walk on. A person who says, yes, I will do it. But I'll tell you one more thing. You, whether you're a superhero or not, you will never be a superhero unless you can say the first words, I'll do it. And if you never do say those words, then you are just one more person who needs to be saved. You are just one more person who needs saving because it's the hero who steps up and says, I'll do it. The passage we're going to be looking at today is mostly about that. Mostly about stepping up into something you've been called to do. There's just one problem with us today. See, back when it was written, there was this issue that they needed to address. The people who needed to step up and the people who should step up were not stepping up, and so someone else had to step up. Someone else had to be a superhero to step up when other people wouldn't step up. That was the issue of their day, and it is the primary issue of this book. However, in our day today, we have another issue that didn't exist back in the days of Judges chapter 4 and 5 in the same way it exists today, and that is the issue of Judges. Because in our world today, when we say, is it my job, oftentimes the way we answer that question involves an understanding of who we are biologically. Well, because I'm a man, is that my job? Or because I'm a woman, is that my job? There's a thing out there that needs to be done, and I now allow gender to be part of my decision-making process of whether or not I'm going to be a hero in that particular area. And in fact, this passage we're going to look at today is a passage of a woman leading the entire nation of Israel because no man would step up. A woman who stepped into being a hero when no man would. And the passage in the Bible, even though it's not primarily about gender, there's a thread of gender that runs through it that is so obvious we are going to need to talk about it. When I was a kid in elementary school, I had in the six years of elementary school one male teacher. That was in fourth grade. I had one male teacher. When I made it to middle school, I had two male teachers. When I made it into high school, I had three male teachers. When I made it to college, I had one female teacher. I actually technically had two, but one of them wasn't really a professor at the school. She was just the, the PE teacher that I took for one of my semesters. But I had two total, all four years of college, strike that, plus seminary. Seven years of college and graduate school, I had two female teachers. And during all of my education, at every school I've ever attended, the principal slash president slash whoever was at the top was a guy. But I also had a teacher when I was in college, freshman year, a guy by the name of Dr. B, Gilbert Bilzekian, who taught us about a thing called egalitarianism and traditionalism and complementarianism. I'm going to put them up on the screen just so you can see these big words. 
Because he was teaching these things to us because he had a chip on his shoulder against what people call traditionalism. Now, uh, egalitarianism is a doctrine that says because of Jesus, there is no longer any difference between men and women other than biology. So there are certain biological realities about women, certain biological realities about men, and those things exist. Men can't or probably shouldn't have physical birth. Um, Women do get pregnant and have babies, and that's basically the extent of the differences. But as far as all the other roles, all the other responsibilities, the way God leads, the way God works with the people, uh, there's no difference. It's completely egalitarian or equal, that's where that word comes from, between men and women. Then there's the traditional approach. The traditional approach is that men always lead, women never do. That's the traditional approach, and it's not true in many societies in our world, but at least it felt true for a lot of people in this country, and so traditionalism is the idea that men should always be leaders and in charge, and women should only be leaders and in charge when they are leading other women or when they are leading children, and then there's this gray area between when a child can be led by a woman and when a child grows up to be an adult and they need to be led only by men. Traditionalists never answer the hard questions. And so then there's a third group of people called complementarians that try to take a middle approach, middle road, where they basically say, listen, I don't think men should always be the leaders. I think there's a complementarity between men and women that is harmonious with each other, but there are some places in life where God has reserved male leadership and some places where he doesn't want women to lead. And so there's a complementarity. There's some roles that we do have, but it's not completely always and only this particular way. So complementarianism is kind of a hybrid in the middle. Before, I'm not going to spend any more time on that because I don't need to spend more time on that gender stuff particularly. I really want to get to Judges 4, 4 and 5 and show you what's going on there. But I'll just say a couple more things so that you, are, you have a framework for what we're going to get to. First of all, you need to be reassured of something about me. I'm going to give you my four basic understandings when it comes to gender roles for Christians. My personal first understanding is that Christians disagree on this and I'm okay with that. Christians disagree on this topic, and I'm okay with that. And that is because there are some passages of the Bible that are difficult to understand. There are some passages of the Bible that look on the surface like they're saying one thing, and there are other passages in the Bible that look on the surface like they're saying the opposite. And so good, godly, biblical Christians disagree on how to understand some of these passages. I think today I'm going to answer all your questions for you, but that's probably naive of me. Anyway, everybody has different opinions on this, and I'm okay with that. If someone disagrees with my opinion on this matter, that's fine. Don't disagree with my Bible. So you can disagree with my opinion and my way of understanding the Bible, but do it based on your understanding of the Bible. Anyway, the second thing is that in my family of origin growing up, my dad never made a decision without my mom except for the one time when he paid $6 for our family to spend a night in a hotel, and um, my mom let him know that was an inappropriate amount of money to spend for our family because the quality of the hotel deserved $6 per night, and it was terrible. And uh, so we never did that again. But that was the only time I remember in my life where my dad actually made a decision without um, consulting my mom first. Um, 
And then he never made that same decision again. But anyway, so my dad never made a decision without consulting my mom. However, my mom never spoke as if she was the decider. My mom always acknowledged that my dad was the leader of the home, even though he never did a thing without her involvement. In my marriage, um, back when Jen and I were first married and I was going to seminary and learning some of these things about egalitarianism and complementarianism and traditionalism and stuff like that, I was convinced we should be egalitarian. So I came home one day and I said, Jen, we're going to be an egalitarian couple. And she said, I'm not going to let you do that. <laughs> and so we're kind of more on the complementarian end of things because my wife told me I couldn't let her be in charge. Um, it, it's, a, just, it's an ironic thing that I think is fascinating for me personally because that's the way my dad and my mom worked. My dad said, I'm not going to lead this by myself. And my mom said, that's okay, but you're still in charge. And it's just the way I grew up. And then there's a third thing. So uh, in our church, this is my fourth overall gender role point. In our church, what we've decided to do is to recognize that there are a few passages of the Bible that seem to be pretty clear about male and female roles. And so in our church, the way we do it is we encourage women to do everything they're called and gifted to do, but we reserve the job of elder only for men whose wives approve. And that's basically how we approach that situation. But that's the last I want to talk about pragmatic issues with gender roles. Because now I want to show you the most important passage in the Bible, the most important story in the Bible about gender and leadership. And it is a woman named Deborah. And the most interesting thing to me about this story is that of all the leaders in the Bible, every leader has a bad side, except Jesus and Deborah. Abraham had a bad side. He got himself into trouble. King David had a bad side. Moses had a bad side. He was a murderer. Uh, Peter had a bad side. Paul had a bad side. But Deborah, nothing bad is ever said about her. Nothing disparaging is ever said about her. Go with me, finally, to Judges chapter 4. And I want to show you the most amazing leader this world has ever known the most godly and honorable leader other than Jesus that is found in the Bible. Because the only thing we know about her is that she did it right. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that Ehud was dead. Okay, so we talked about Ehud a couple weeks ago and last week also. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Hagayim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Once again, this is the story of the Israelites doing the wrong thing, then they get oppressed, and then they eventually, years later, decide to get their act together, and they come back to the Lord, they turn to the Lord, they reach out to God, and God responds. Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. Now, I'm, I'm going to pause there right now because that's just too important. Deborah was leading Israel at the time. Verse 5, she held court under the palm of Deborah, 
Between, well, if your name is Deborah, of course you're going to have court under the palm of Deborah, right? Isn't that the place where you would choose to? No, it's the other way around. They named the palm tree because that's her favorite place. That's where she wanted to do her leadership duties. And so everybody called the palm tree the palm of Deborah because, in other words, she had a tree named after her. Under the palm of Deborah, between Ramah and Bethel, in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple blanks as we go along, just so that you can track with me on this story. First of all, Deborah was a prophetess, and she was leading the nation. She was a prophetess. That means she was hearing God's voice, and she was delivering God's word to God's people. That is amazing. Would you like to know how many prophets there are in the Bible before Deborah? Yeah, so would I, because I can't think of any. Samuel was referred to as a person who was kind of prophetic, but Deborah was a prophet. Amazing thing. God chooses to speak to Moses. God chooses to speak to Joshua. But he chooses also to speak to Deborah so much that she gets known as a prophetess. It's an amazing, amazing thing going on here. And she is leading Israel at the time. Look with me at verse 6. It says, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. In other words, Deborah calls for some dude to be brought to her. His name is Barak, or the Hebrews probably pronounced it Barak. She calls for this guy to be, to be brought to her. She summons this man. She sent for this man, and she commanded this man. She said, the Lord commands you. Now, that's a measure of authority that we would expect anyone who was like general level or president level or king level to do. And Deborah is doing that. By the way, you should notice this. Up until this point, nothing in the passage has described to us that having a woman lead the nation is weird. It's highly important for you to realize that Deborah's leadership of this nation was in no way considered wrong, was in no way considered abnormal. The writer of the book of Judges doesn't say, Deborah, who was a woman, was leading the nation of Israel at the time. It's just Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading the nation. Boom. It's just out there. But keep going with me. Let's look at verse 8. It says this, Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course of action you are taking, the honor will not be yours. I'll come back to that in just a little bit. Barak says, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. I want you to write that down. Barak says, if you, I'll go if you go with me. 
Here's the dude summoned by the leader. The leader says, do this thing. And he says, yeah. Now, we could give Barak the benefit of the doubt. I mean, here's Deborah. She's a prophetess. She's definitely hearing from God, right? And so since she's hearing from God, she's got to in with God. And if she's on the battlefield too, God's not going to let her die. So Barak is like, I'm just going to stand next to Deborah. And it's smart, we could say it's smart for a leader with God's voice to be present on the battlefield with me. We could give Barak the benefit of the doubt and say he's making a wise decision to have this leader of representing God with him. But I know better. You see, I know that his real motive was cowardice or maybe doubt. Maybe it was doubt. God isn't really going to be with us unless, Deborah, you also show up. I need the Deborah idol to remind myself that God is with me. That's possible what he's doing. It could also be just confidence problems, a cowardice problem. It could be him saying, listen, I need a woman standing next to me so that people don't attack me thinking they might accidentally kill her. And so I'm going to, I'm going to stand kind of behind the shield of the godly woman or the shield of this woman that maybe other people won't attack. I don't know. Maybe it was cowardice. All we know is that his motives were wrong. And we know it because of what Deborah said back to him. He said, I'll go if you go, but if you don't go, I won't go. Verse 9, she says, certainly I will go with you. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. This is interesting. Deborah specifically looks at Barak and he says to him, she says to him, since you will not trust the word of God coming from my mouth, since you will not take the action that God is calling you to do, since you will not be the hero God is calling you to be and step up into this responsibility on your own without coercion, I'm going to take the honor of this victory away from you and I'm going to give it to a woman. Now, this is why I say that gender is a major part of this story because it is a major part of the story. Not some lesson about gender where we might expect God to write down some 11th commandment, thou shalt let women lead. Uh, we, he doesn't give us that. What he gives us is a woman who's leading, who tells a man something to do. He's reluctant in doing it. And so the honor does not go to the man. The honor is promised to go to not another, not a different warrior, not a different person, but specifically a woman. Deborah 
makes this a gender issue by saying to him his punishment is that he doesn't get the honor. Instead, it's going to a woman. Let me point this out to you. I'm going to show you two verses that we already looked at. Judges chapter 4, 7 and 9. We'll put them both on the screen here. It says, Deborah says, I will lead Sisera, but she's speaking God's voice. So it's really God saying, God will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hands. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. Keep going. It says, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. The phrase is exactly the same, in two hands. Deborah first says to Barak, the Lord will deliver Sisera into your hands. Barak says what he says, and then she says, the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. The honor was supposed to be Barak's. He hesitated, and so the honor went to a woman. Not just another person, but a specific woman that we're going to see in just a little bit. But I'm going to pause, and I'm just going to address a couple things on women in leadership. This passage doesn't directly address women women in leadership, but this passage gives us some principles that we need to make sure we remember in our world today because gender and leadership is a problem for us today, not like it was a problem for Deborah back then. It was understood things about honor and propriety with regard to men and women in leadership. I really do believe Deborah was trying to live out a a complementarian kind of perspective back here, and I'll show you just a few lessons that we can learn from this passage. First of all is this. God is not opposed to putting a woman in charge. You have to know that. There's nothing intrinsic about women that makes God say, I don't want them to be in charge. God is not opposed to a woman being in charge. That is absolutely fundamental that we understand that. Nevertheless, this passage also shows us that when a woman is in charge, she tells a man to step up. So we can conclude from that that God still desires, or maybe even in the context of all the rest of Scripture, prefers faithful male leadership. I know for some of you, the first sentence was hard to fill in the blank. The first sentence was hard for you to accept, that God has absolutely nothing wrong, thinks there's nothing wrong with a woman in leadership. And I know others of you probably had a problem filling in the blanks on the second statement, that God prefers faithful male leadership. Is that really the truth? Is that really the case? This passage seems to indicate that God wanted Barak to step up, and when Barak, a man, did not, he then gave honor or promised honor to a woman. There's a very clear gender thing happening here, and so our conclusion is probably that God preferred or wanted, desired faithful male leadership. But then this last one, when men are dishonorable, God will raise up honorable women. This is a complicated thing. I'm going to give you some practical thoughts at the very end of our message. But for now, I'm just going to leave this here as some lessons that seem to be coming from this story of Deborah. Let's get back into it and let's finish up the story itself. Verse 9, look again one more time. She says, go with. In fact, if you looked at verse 8, Barak said, go with. 
And if you, I will go if you go with me. If you don't go with me, I won't go. If you just look at 8, 9, and 10, you see the phrase go with or a version of that phrase over and over and over again. And it is highly important that you realize that the writer of Judges wants you to know that Deborah is the hero of this story. Deborah is the hero because she's the one who's going with. She is the one who's going with Barak. She is the endorsement of his leadership, which makes her leadership higher than his. It's important. But let's keep going because the story, even though I think what we've just covered is perhaps the most important stuff of the story, the fun stuff is coming next. Here we go. Look at verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. Heber was a person who was a descendant of the Kenites. The Kenites were not Israelites. The Kenites lived in the land of Midian, off in a distance. Moses married a Kenite because his father-in-law and his brother-in-law were Kenites. Moses lived in Midian. He married a Kenite even though Moses was an Israelite. Also, Caleb was a Kenite. Caleb's brother Othniel, we saw him last week and the week before, was also a Kenite. There are lots of Kenites in this story who are not Israelites, but they are sympathetic to the family of Israel because they are still Abraham's descendants. And so here's this guy, Heber the Kenite, and he's living in Kedesh on the south end of the country, but that's also where Barak was from. When they told Sisera that Barak's son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advice, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak was so successful that Sisera gets out of his chariot and runs. He just takes off and runs. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hetzor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. So Heber was a Kenite, and so he was friendly with Israel, but he was also friendly with the other nations too. He wasn't completely loyal only to Israel. So this guy runs to that guy's house. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. It's an interesting assessment of domination authority that this man is displaying over jail, don't you think? Bring me this. Bring me this. Go out there. Do what I tell you to do. But, verse 21, J.L. Heber's wife picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground and he died. I love that. That's better than the Ehud sword in the belly thing. 
The sword in the belly, I love that story with the fat closes around the sword and all that stuff. It's just so cool. But driving a tent peg through a dude's head while he's asleep, man, that rocks. The book of Judges is worth reading, I tell you what. Anyway, verse 22, just then Barak came by. He's a little late in showing up, isn't he? Just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to him to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple dead. I just, the picture of a dude laying on the ground, nailed to the ground, is so gross, and yet at the same time so cool. Anyway, just got to keep going. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Now, it's a gross story. It's a cool story. I think it's one of my favorite stories. But one of the things that's the weirdest part about this story is that the author tells it to us a second time. Chapter 4, we go through the story once. Chapter 5, he tells it a second time. A second time. None of the other judges get a duplication of their story. In the story of Deborah, though, the story first is a narrative, prose account of Deborah and the events that happened and the cool thing that Jael did to wipe out this commander of Jabin's army. And so we hear this story in narrative prose form. And then chapter 5 tells us the exact same story all over again, but this time in poetry form, this time in poetic form. Why would the author of the book of Judges want to tell us the same story twice, the same story in two different ways, unless he was convinced this is a story you have to know. This is a story you have to get. In fact, up until now, it's just been a fun read. But in chapter 5, we get the reason for everything that happened. Walk through it with me. In chapter 5, We have section 1 of verses 1 through 8. I'm splitting splitting them up into my own sections just to try to explain to you kind of how this is going. But I'm splitting it up 1 to 8. It says, On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, In the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose. Until I arose, a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates, but not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. A couple things real quick. First of all, verse 1 tells us the song was sung by Deborah and Barak, right? However, the lyrics of the song are, I, Deborah. (laughs) The lyrics of the song are, I'm a mom and I stepped up. I find it really interesting to imagine what Barak sounded like when he sang the words, 
I, Deborah, stepped up. Because it's just more evidence, more, more, more twisting of the knife about Barack's own failures. Let me highlight for you what you need to know from this first section. The first section is all about leadership and followership. It says in the very beginning, verse 2, when the leaders lead and the people willingly offer themselves, praise God. It's an amazing thing. When the leaders lead and the people offer themselves, praise God. This whole song is going to be, just like chapter 4, actually a lesson in leadership, actually a lesson in heroism, and actually a lesson on whether or not you are going to be a hero by saying, I will do it, by saying, I will step up. That's why the contrast of JL's initiative taking and Barack's weaseling is so strong in this story. That's why Deborah being a leader, even though the Bible doesn't say anything about the fact that she was a woman who was doing the leadership, she says it in this story because she says, God is amazing and great, but the people were inept and inactive and wandering and doing nothing and just basically, nah, until I, Deborah, stepped up. Did you pick up on that? When leaders lead and people follow, praise God. God was moving, the people weren't, and so Deborah stepped up. The whole first stanza of this is leading to that moment where she says, eventually someone had to lead, and so I did. Look at verse 9. Now we get into the second section, the second stanza of this. She says, my heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. If you didn't pick up on it, that's the same thing that verse 2 was. Verse 2 said, when the leaders of Israel lead and the people follow, then praise the Lord. Verse 9, my heart is with the leaders of Israel. My heart is also with the followers or the volunteers in Israel, so praise the Lord. Verse 2 and verse 9 are the same idea, and so that's why we understand that verse 9 is beginning a new set of concepts. The beginning one was Deborah finally stepped up. Now we're going to try to see, are the others going to step up too? Verse 10, you who ride on white donkeys sitting on your saddle blankets and you who walk along the road, consider the voice of the singers at the watering places. They recite the victories of the Lord, the victories of his villagers in Israel. In other words, there are these people who are living in luxury. Deborah says, are you paying attention to what God used to do? Keep going. It says, then the people of the Lord went down to the city gates. Wake up, wake up, Deborah. Wake up, wake up. Break out in song. Arise, Barak. Take captive your captives, son of Abinoam. The, the normal people are now coming to the leaders and they're saying, it's time for us to do something. It's time for us to take action. The people who aren't leaders are telling the people who are leaders to lead. Deborah says, I had to step up and I was leading. But then there was still this other time when the people who weren't leaders stepped up to tell me that I really needed to lead. And they said it to Barak. They said, lead. Because when the people who are supposed to lead, lead. And the people who are supposed to follow, follow. Praise God. Look at verse 11. They recite the victories of the Lord and the victories of his villagers in Israel. They're so excited about what God used to do. 
that they say, let's do it again. Skip ahead, verse 13. The remnant of the nobles came down. The people of the Lord came down to me against the mighty. Some came from Ephraim, whose roots were in Amalek. Benjamin was with the people who followed you. From Mechir, captains came down. From Zebulun, those who bear a commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, sent under his command into the valley. What she's doing is she's narrating all the other volunteers who stepped up. All the other people who said, yes, I'm going to step up. I'm going to join this thing. Deborah, you lead, I will follow. Barak, you lead, I will follow. And then we get to this. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the sheep pens to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. There were lots of people in Reuben who were like, eh, I don't know. Is it really my job? I got these sheep. Is it really my job to take care of Jabin and Sisera and these other enemies? I'm fine. Verse 17, Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coasts and stayed in his coves. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the terraced fields. Deborah says some people stepped up, but not everyone. And when the leaders lead and the, people's follow, the people follow, praise God. And when the leaders lead and the people don't follow, shake your head. Let's finish it up. Verse 19, kings came, they fought. Enemies were stepping up. The kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder of silver. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Nature's stepping up. The other enemy king stepped up, and now God is stepping up by even using nature to bring difficulty to them. Keep going. It says, they plundered, the, they then thundered the horse's hooves, galloping, galloping go his mighty steeds. Curse Miraz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its people bitterly because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. In other words, the enemies have stepped up and so did God. But here's how the story ends. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for milk and she gave him milk. She's blessed because she's so generous. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. By the way, all their milk was curdled. I mean, because it was in a wine skin. It was in a milk skin. Remember that? That just meant that it was prepared especially to be safe like a liquid yogurt kind of drink. In other words, it was better than normal. It was better than normal. In a bowl fit for nobles. She was treating him so well. And then verse 26, her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. And here's my favorite, favorite stanza of the, whole, of the whole song. Here it goes. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. It's like a E.E. E. Cummings poem or an Emily Dickinson poem. It's just... He sank, he fell, he lay, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, he fell. Dead. <laughs> I just love that. It's so great. Anyway, through the window peered Sisera's mother. Wait a minute, we're talking about Sisera's mom now? Another woman has entered the scene? It's because Sisera doesn't come home. 
And so the last stanza is a taunt about the woman whose heart is broken because her son Sisera is now dead. Behind the lattice she cried out, Why is chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answered her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, Are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A woman or two for each man. Colorful garments as plunder for Sisera. Colorful garments embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck and all this as plunder. She's like, No, he probably won and it's taken him a long time to get up all of his winnings, his plunder. But she's going to be disappointed in verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, Lord, but may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Then the land had peace for 40 years. The story is told twice. Because the first time we get the narrative, the second time we get the specific lessons that we need. The lessons are, when leaders lead and followers follow, praise the Lord. In other words, when people step up to do what they're supposed to do, praise the Lord. J.L. stepped up. Deborah stepped up. Barak was dragged into it. So, yeah, this isn't really a story about gender, first and foremost. I want to give you the first and foremost part of this story. And then I'm going to end with just a few more comments about women in leadership. Because as I said before, one of the most important lessons you need to learn from this passage is that never in the entire set of chapter 4 and 5 is it ever considered unusual that Deborah would be the leader. That's a normal kind of thing. Even though there's the expectation that Barak was supposed to step up, there's also this normalization of the fact that she's a leader. No one says, you know what? We really got to finish up with Deborah's thing, so let's put Barak in charge. No one says that. No one does that. In other words, the fact that Deborah was leading was not an issue. Therefore, we know that the number one lesson in this passage is not about women and men in leadership. It's about leaders in leadership. Write it down this way. I'll give you three things that you need to write down. When God gifts you and calls you to lead, lead. That's just it. When God gifts you and calls you to lead, lead. Number two, when one of God's leaders calls you to follow, follow. That's it. It's just simple, straightforward. And then number three, when God gives you a tent peg, use it. I don't know what it is that you've got. I don't know what your skills are. I don't know what your talents are. This woman had a couple things going for her. She had a tent and she had milk. That's basically all she had. She had a tent and she had milk. And she found some workman's hammer and she was like, you know what? I'm going to make use of a tent peg. She's not waiting around for Barack to show up. I mean, he does show up just a little too late. She's not waiting around for him to show up. She's going to take matters literally into her own hands with the tools that God has given her. These are the stories of heroes. Last week I told you, you are a hero whether you feel it or not. And I want to say it once again, you are a hero. You are a hero and you can be a hero. There's just one thing that heroes do that you need to do. Step up. Heroes say, yes, I'll do it. 
Whether you're a leader who says, I'll do it, that's a hero. Or a follower who says, yes, I'll do it, that's a hero. Or someone who's got nothing in their hand but a tent peg, that's a hero. The main lesson of this story is when leaders lead and followers follow, praise God. There is this side lesson, though, that I just want to briefly comment on before we close. It's a but also kind of thing. And it's just this. Men, I have no problem from this passage or the other passages in the Bible telling you, step up. Be a faithful, mature, godly leader. Don't be the lazy person who lets other people take care of it. Don't be the one who just says, it's not really my job. Step up and be a leader. But men, I also have no problem telling you to sometimes shut up and be a listener. In fact, more often than not, I would say. Because the best leaders are the ones who talk the least. If you're not listening to the people you lead, how in the world do you expect to lead? So men, I have no problem telling you to step up. I also have no problem to, telling you some, to tell you sometimes keep your mouth shut and listen. Women, I have no problem telling you that you never need to wait around for a man to do the thing that you have been gifted to do. You never have to wait around for Barack to show up before you use your tent peg. You never have to be the person who says, I'm just going to sit here and hope that God brings a good man into my life and until then, I'm just this. Women, I have no problem telling you. You don't need to wait around for a man when God has given you a gift or skill or calling to step into. But women, I also have no problem telling you that the strongest woman in the Bible used all the authority under her power to tell a man to step up. The strongest woman in the Bible used her authority to tell a man to step up. In other words, women, I have no problem telling you to lead men to lead. I don't know the dynamics. I don't know the social dynamics about what specific things men should do and what specific things women should do. And do you know why I don't know the dynamics of that? Because God never tells me. He never makes it an issue. What he does is he makes this issue. When people who are supposed to lead, lead, and when people who are supposed to follow, follow, everyone wins. Praise God. And the woman in the story who leads tells a man to lead. And the man who's been called to lead doesn't. And so a woman steps up. There's a lot of complexities in this. And I'm not going to give you a tight and fast little answer of some sort of systematic thought. So I'll just leave it with the main idea of this passage. If God is calling you to lead, lead. If God is calling you to follow, follow. But whatever it is, be a hero. Step up and say, I'll do it. 
I want to encourage you to be people who are heroic this week, no matter what. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.